We ready to get in the locker room today? Yeah, some of you guys have been here long enough uh, to know that that's uh, one of our favorite terms about what this is when we gather. We're going to be looking uh, this morning at those two questions that we like to ask of ourselves. Who are we and what are we doing here? And I know we've uh, at times uh, told you about this journey that, uh, that I've led the staff down the last year and a half uh, where we have just really looked hard at um, as a staff where we are as a church. Again, asking those questions, who are we? What have we become? Uh, what is it that we're actually going for? What are we doing here? Uh, this journey has included us taking inventory of our vision, our mission, our values. Uh, each ministry team here was tasked with assessing their part in the whole uh, of rethinking and rewriting the specific role that their team plays in making our vision and mission a reality. Uh, all of this was done arm in arm together and, of course, arm in arm with the elders. And so, uh, drum roll, <laughs> here is our vision. Oh, this is hilarious. <laughs> I don't mind that response. I really don't. Um, because it was the sermon Jesus preached wherever he went. And I know it's a mystery to us. Again, vision is, is what we see, what, what, what we want to see happen. Uh, and, and you guys see that, the kingdom of God, and you're not quite sure what to do with it. That's okay, but you need to know that when Jesus' audience heard Jesus going from village to village, announcing that the kingdom of heaven is here, the hair stood up on their necks. They got chills. And so Jesus' vision is, is our vision, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, our mission, uh, this is the mission of this church. Crossroads Bible Church is a biblical community. A biblical community is family where Jesus Christ transforms lives, renews the city and the nations. And again, uh, the mission is, is what we must become in order for our vision to become a reality. And then we also uh, put together three values, and the values are the things that matter most to us, uh, the, what we must become as a people in order for our uh, mission and vision uh, to be realized. And last week, uh, we looked at the value of worship, that we individually, personally, and also corporately and collectively would be on this wholehearted pursuit of Jesus Christ. And just imagine if uh, we were a people like the woman last week with the alabaster jar, uh, that we seek Christ, that we love Christ, that we seek to know Christ, that we seek to abide in Christ, that we treasure Christ above all things, because it all starts here. If, if this isn't what defines this church, if this isn't what we value and what we're going for, everything else will be hollow, it will be bankrupt, it will be empty. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, therefore abide in me. And this is a church that first and foremost values just that. Uh, today we're going to talk about our second value, and that is community, uh, being a biblical community. So if worship is the wholehearted pursuit of God, uh, 
uh, community then is the intentional pursuit of each other, uh, where we live into the one another's of the text. I don't know if you know this, but there are 59 one another's uh, in the New Testament uh, where uh, the family of God is exhorted to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, build one another up, carry one another's burdens, confess your sins uh, to one another, be at peace uh, with one another. And, and, and so basic to this value is that it tells us that church is not an event, it's not a program, it's not a building Church is first and foremost a people. And that's why I would say 1 Peter 2 verse 9 is probably our theme verse where it says, but you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people who belong to God. Uh, This is just basic to who we are. We are a people. We are literally a people whom God picked, whom God chosen. In fact, the word for people here uh, in the original language is is the word genos, from which we get the word genes or genealogy. Uh, Its most literal meaning, uh, genos here, it means family. I don't know what kind of family uh, you're a part of, but think about everything that family is supposed to be. It's it's supposed to be the place where we're known, place where we're loved, where we belong, all without conditions. It's a place where we're given our name, Our name is our identity. We're also given the responsibility to live up to that name. Family is the place where where we let it all hang out, where we can be the most real, uh, where we don't have to hide. It's the place where our greatest joys are celebrated, where our greatest hurts, our struggles, our pains are shared and shouldered with other people who know us, who love us, who believe in us. That's what the church is called to be. We're a people. We're a, we're a genos. We're, we're, we're a family. And, and today, we're, we're living in a world that is so inconsiderate of, of family. It's, it's really difficult in today's world to, to actually be family and, and, and to live into this family. Uh, from our crazy, busy schedules to our insatiable need for things that are comfortable and convenient. And then look around at this church. I mean, we're getting bigger. And the danger that always lurks here is that uh, we're just a crowd. You know, that, that, that you walk in here this morning as a stranger and that you leave this place as a stranger. And for us as a church to give into this, uh, it would first betray God, who God is. Because God is not just some aloof, isolated, individual entity. God is a God who is in community himself, which we're going to look at this morning. And God is about the pursuit. And so also, I I, I think to give in uh, would, would sideline us from all the amazing things that God is doing in our world right now. Because whether you know this or not... God right now is redeeming a world that he loves, and God is doing this amazing work through family. And I know you want to just stand for the reading of God's word, so I'm just not going to really have a text today, but Genesis 12, you can go there, but let's all just stand for this.
Because it's an amazing thing that God is doing in our world right now to redeem a world that he loves. This plan to redeem his world uh, is, is set into motion right here in Genesis 12. Verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, get up and go. That's literally how it reads. Get up and go from your country, your people, your genos, and your father's household, your family, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever causes... Whoever curses you, I will curse. Look at the promise of this text. And all the peoples, all the families on earth, will be blessed through you, Abraham. Uh, And this, too, is a commercial for where we're going in the book of Genesis uh, soon. So you may be seated. But this is God saying to Abraham, Abraham, leave everything, (laughs) your comfort, Life as you know it, and most importantly, your father's house, and come walk after me, follow me. And in this moment in time, Genesis 12, verse 1, a partnership is taking place between God and humanity. And this is a partnership that's been severed. Because when God created the universe, as as that creation nears its completion, God puts his hands in the earth and from the clay, he fashions something to look just like himself. And God's crowning act of creation is making these little replicas of himself, these, these little miniatures of God. And this is where we need to start asking the why questions when you're reading this in in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, like, why would God do this? And the simple answer why God would make a little miniature, a little replica of himself in Adam and Eve is that God wants a partner. God wants partners uh, who will reflect his glory. He wants these creatures who will show off God to the universe, uh, to, to, to put on display God's face to reveal God's heart. And this is why God then after he creates everything and then these little miniatures of God, why he entrusts everything that he made, the whole universe. It says, Adam and Eve, here here are the keys to my universe. Rule it, steward it, take care of it, cause it all to flourish for my glory. And the tragic thing is that Adam and Eve took the keys But they decided to rule this world that God entrusted to them without God. And they ruled it for their glory instead of God's glory. And they ruled it according to their way instead of God's way. And the world fell back into chaos. Probably the most stunning thing in the first 12 chapters of our Bible. That as the world rejects God, as it descends into this narcissistic moral filth, is that God doesn't give up on it. And the whole rest of the Bible is, 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 is the story of God not giving up on a world that he so loves. And it's the story of how God is going to redeem this world that he loves. 
because this is God's heart. He loves this world. It's his heart to redeem it, for God so loves the world. He is redeemer who redeems. And from Genesis 12 onward, the question then becomes, if God is going to redeem this world, how is he going to do it? And he's going to do it with what he does with Abraham. Abraham, leave your life and come follow me. And in the ancient world, there's, there's one specific thing that, that especially formed a person's identity that, that was at the core of their worth and, and their significance. And it was their family. It was the family that, that they belonged to. And this is what Abraham's called to leave. He's called to leave the source of his identity, the source of his meaning, his satisfaction, his protection, uh, everything that, that, that made life worth it. God says, I want you to leave that. You're to leave your father's house. Now, in Hebrew, uh, father's house uh, is the word beit av. Beit uh, is the word for house, and av is the word for father. So beit av is father's house. And, and it's essentially their word for family, and it's all over the Old Testament. And also you have to understand that Bedov in the ancient world, it was more than just the nuclear fam- family that consisted of mom, dad, brothers, and sisters, but it was broader than that. It started with grandpa and then grandma and then aunts and uncles and, and all the cousins. And so Bedov would be a uh, family of, of, of all of these people consisting of about 50 to 100 people all living in close proximity to each other in this intimate relationship, this deep interdependence. Now, I add to this, this is a world where people just live to survive the next day, where, where every family member matters, where every family member is significant to the survival of that family. So in this world, every moment of every day for every family member is meaningful. You, you, you didn't leave your, your family, your bait off to go off and to find yourself or to make a life for yourself or a name for yourself because... Beidav was your life. Beidav was the place where you derived your name and your identity. It was your source of meaning and significance. It was your happiness. It was your joy. It was your protection. It was your very life. Therefore, to lose this was to lose everything. And the reason why it's called Beidav, Father's House, is because everything is centered on the father or the patriarch. It's a life arrangement where Everything is done under this man's care. And so, as a father, in this arrangement, it's his responsibility to meet every single need of his household, which is why everything in the household belongs to him. I mean, but don't think mobster here. You need to keep thinking he is a father He is a father to be a father to everyone in that family. He is to meet every need of that household. It's his responsibility that each person is fed, clothed, protected, housed, loved, valued, and unleashed to the flourishing of that family. In fact, in Acts, it says this about the early church. Already in Acts chapter 2, it says that there is not a need among them. And this describes uh, the actual responsibility of a father in a beit av, is that there would not be a need among any one of the family members under his care and protection. 
And this is what Abraham is called to leave. God says, get up and go and leave your father's house. Again, why is God asking Abraham to leave his bait of? It's for the simple reason that God is forming a new bait of. In fact, Abram, his original name means great father, or you could just simplify it and say daddy. But then as the story progresses, God doesn't like that name because that doesn't represent what God is doing through Abraham. So he changes his name to Avram to Avraham, which now he's not just daddy, but now he's big daddy. And, and, and none of this is coincidence uh, because Abraham is going to be the father of God's new family. A family that will be different than anything the world has ever seen. And not just in terms of its holiness, but it's going to consist of people from every language, race, culture, all forming one big family, God's family. And what I want us to see right now is that family is the vehicle for which God is going to redeem the world. And maybe without jumping ahead, I can say this right now. If we aren't family, if we aren't pursuing becoming a family, if we're nothing more than a church service or a list of programs or simply defined by a set of doctrines that we all prescribe to, if that's all we are, we're missing it. Because this whole story of God is about family, and it's about us becoming a part of God's family. This is why Jesus, his whole ministry as well, is predicated on just this, family. Remember that one time when he's teaching, he's holding court with all these people, and someone interrupts Jesus. It tells you the kind of person Jesus is, that he can be interrupted when he's preaching a sermon. Um, And they say, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus just looks at his audience and he says, these are my mothers, my fathers, my brothers, my sisters. This is his family. And even the the, the numbers in in Hebrew, which are are more than just numeric values, but they have symbolic uh, meaning as well. Uh, The number 12 is the number in Hebrew that symbolizes a complete family. Jacob had 12 sons. It's it's also the way, Bible's way of saying that Jacob had a complete family. Uh, twelve tribes of Israel, that's God's complete family. And Jesus now has twelve disciples, that's Jesus' complete family. In fact, the early church comprised, was comprised of 120 people when it, when it, when it was uh, launched in Acts. And then you get to the end of the uh, New Testament in Revelation, and the final church is comprised of 144,000. That's 12 squared. And that's just... The Bible shouting us at us that this whole thing is about family. It's about God's family. And this is why all the New Testament writers, when you look closely, uh, they all address the church as brothers and sisters and children. Why? Because these are family terms. Because we are not an institution or simply an organization. We are first and foremost family. 
And we must pursue family to the point where we can say, there's not a need among us. That's the vision of this church. And see, all of this is, 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 is rooted into something that, that is also most basic. Uh, family is who God is. Uh, God's very essence is, is family. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so foundational to the church, because the doctrine of the, of the Trinity teaches us that God within himself is this plurality of persons. We, we can say one God, yet three distinct persons, or we can say three distinct persons, yet one God. We sing this when we sing God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And so when God too, is making sense of this reality of, of the essence of, of, of what God is, the triune nature of God, God uses family language. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I love how C.S. Lewis explains the significance of this. He says, perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all the other religions is that in Christianity, God is not this static thing. He's not even one person, but God is this dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a drama, a dance, a circle of glory, of fullness and delight between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then when you think about what all of this means, that at the heart of the universe is relationship. And that ultimate reality is, is not just a force, let the force be with you, but it's this family of persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person is pouring oceans of love into the other and bringing glory to the other in the most selfless, glorifying ways. Which means something pretty incredible if you think about it. God did not create this world because he was lonely. God did not create this world because he was needy and he needed love. God already had love. And God then made the world to share it. We were made to belong to this divine family, to be in God's bait of, to know the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to be a part of this dance, this drama, uh, this God in three persons, yet one God. And what's this God, what's this family of God about? From Genesis 12 onward in our Bible, one simple thing, the redemption of the world. In fact, this, this, this word re redeem, which is all over our Bibles, um, or, or the word redemption, you can also add to it. It, it comes right out of Abraham's world. Um, in fact, it originates from this context of Bedav, of, of, of how they do family, because I already said it's the father's response, responsibilities. Take care of every need. Well, if 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 a piece of property is lost, or if one of the family members somehow goes bankrupt, or even worse yet, if one of the family members is marginalized in any way from the Beit Av, 
It's the father's responsibility to, to use his resources and to do whatever it takes to restore anything that was lost and to bring that family member back to Bedav. And doing that is what it means to redeem. That's redemption. To be redeemed is, in essence, to be brought home. It's when you, for whatever reason, have gone outside of the household and then the father doing whatever it takes to bring you back, to restore you, that's what it means to be redeemed. We see this concept of, of, of redemption throughout the biblical story. One of the first places is Abraham himself when his nephew Lot gets kidnapped by these chieftains from the east And what does Abraham do? Well, the text says that he takes his 300 men to find him, to rescue Lot. Why? Lot's part of his bait off. It's it's Abraham's responsibility to restore Lot to the household. In fact, I love what Genesis 14, verse 14 says. Uh, This is where this whole story is. And it says, when Abraham heard that his relative Lot had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men who were born in his household or in his Bedav, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Did you see what Abraham has in his household? He has 318 trained Men. Trained. And see, now we're stepping into the language of discipleship. How many trained men or women are in your household right now? How many sons and daughters have have you've raised up to, to fight, to take on the powers and principalities of this world? How many trained men and trained women are are in the family of crossroads right now? See, this is why if we're not giving our, our best time and resources towards this, of training each other up, of training even the next generation to become men and women for Christ, then we're wasting a lot of time. You see, this is how our our vision of the kingdom of heaven is going to be realized. It's it's through each of us reproducing ourselves into the life of others. Our relationship with Jesus Christ, reproducing that. It's it's walking uh, and following Christ and, and, and saying to people, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, Jesus gave his whole life to training 12 men, and these 12 men changed the world. In fact, they are the fulfillment of Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of heaven is here. The way the kingdom of heaven breaks out is Jesus raising up 12 and sending them out. Parents, what are you doing with your children? Do you have a vision for your children? Are you intentionally training them and raising them up? Or to all the Christ followers in this room right now, like ask yourself right now, who is it that you're training? Who is it that you're raising up? Who is it that you right now are are pouring your life into? 
And this is how Abraham could redeem Lot, is he had the 318 trained men. And he went out and he found Lot. And he restored him to Badov. He redeemed him. It's also the story of Naomi and Ruth. Um, Naomi and Ruth are, are, are widowed. They lose their bait of, uh, but you know the story. There's a redeemer. His name is Boaz, who redeems them, and he restores them in the most amazing ways. I mean, stories are all over the Bible of, of, of redemption. Uh, my favorite one is probably Hosea because it's, it's, it's so surprising. Um, if you know the story, God says to this great prophet, he says, Hosea, go to the house of prostitution, and I want you to pick one of the prostitutes there. You talk about people who are marginalized. And Hosea, this great prophet of God, goes to the house of prostitution, and he purchases Gomer, but not for a one-night stand. He, he purchases her to take her, literally, as his wife, and... You talk about cost, not just the financial cost of this, uh, but also the cost to Hosea's uh, reputation. And in doing this, do you have to see what Hosea is doing? He's, he's re- redeeming Gomer. He's restoring Gomer to Bedav. She's brought home. She gets her life back. In fact, she has a family. She bears Hosea three children, but then... At some point, tragically, uh, she misses her old life. She goes back to her street life, and she's put up for sale again. And God says to Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go find her. And I want you to go and buy her back. Redeem her. And Hosea says, I went, and I found her. And I redeemed her. This is what it means to redeem. This is, this is uh, what redemption means. And, and so when God over and over says, I am your redeemer, uh, places like Isaiah 43, where, where it says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. You have nothing to fear. Why? Because I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. And you'll just think about this. When, when, when God says that I'm your redeemer, uh, hear, hear what this means then about us in light of this context. It means that we're all alienated from home, that we're marginalized, that we're lost, that we're orphaned, that we're widowed apart from God. All of us. But more importantly, think about what this says about God when God says, I'm your redeemer. And God is saying about himself in this statement is, I am, I'm your father. And I'm not just any kind of father, but, but I'm a father like Abraham and Boaz and Hosea, that when I see you in your widowed orphan state or even in your prostitution, that I'll risk everything to get you back and restore you to Badaf. And you just keep reading the biblical story and you, and you see where the biblical story goes and you look at what it costs God to get us back, what it costs God to redeem us, to bring us home. It costs us his most precious resource, his son. Son, would you leave my side and would you go across all worlds? Would you find them and redeem them? Would you bring them home? And think about Jesus. He, he came and 
he taught us about his father, and he taught us about his father's household. And think about the kind of father that, that, that Jesus taught us the father is. I mean, the, the parable of the prodigal uh, is Jesus teaching about uh, just that. Uh, he's not just a father, but he's that kind of father. In fact, Jesus said, to see me is to see the Father, so forever wondering what this Father is like, how good he is, how beautiful he is, how glorious he is, how gracious he is. All we need to do is just look at Jesus. In fact, in, in, in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke's gospel uh, really hangs, um, or the, the ministry of Jesus hangs on, on, on two uh, colossal statements that, that Jesus makes in that gospel. Uh, the first statement is Jesus saying the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and that, that's what Luke's gospel is about. It's about Jesus coming to the world and, and, and finding lost, marginalized, orphaned, widowed people, even prostitutes, and showing them the face of the Father, uh, the heart of the Father, the love of the Father, and him bringing them home and restoring them to Beit Av. The second statement in, in Luke's gospel that Jesus' ministry kind of hangs on is the Son of Man not only came to seek and to save the lost, but the Son of Man also came eating and drinking. And in, in Luke's gospel, what he wants us to see is, is, is this is how Christ seeks and saves the lost, that he eats with the lost, he eats with the marginalized, the sinners, the prostitutes, because he knows what we've lost, that we've lost home, that we lost home life, that we lost time around the table. And Luke shows us that Jesus is home, that he is the home that we lost. He's the table that we are made to belong to. He's the meal. He's the feast. He's the Father's feast. Christ is our heart's true home. He is. We also see in Luke's gospel, all the gospels, just how expensive hospitality in this sense is for God. It isn't convenient. It isn't comfortable. It, it, it costs him everything. It demands great sacrifice. A cross. Everything. I mean, this is how much it costs God to, to welcome us home and to bring us back. He... He gave up absolutely everything to redeem us. Now, what does all this mean for us today? I think it means a lot. Number one, if family is who God is, that, that God is this family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then family is also God's vehicle to unleash his kingdom, then family must first and foremost be what Crossroads is, or at least seeking to be, and we must see family as our primary, primary, primary vehicle of partnering with God, family. God never intended for us to do this alone. God never intended for us to be just this crowd of strangers. He never intended for us to just be an organization or an institution He's family. We are to be family. 
And this is why at every level, in every endeavor, Crossroads must fight with everything we have to be family. And Sunday morning cannot be the only thing. In fact, it can't even be the main thing. Sunday morning to us is simply the catalytic thing. It's it's the thing that hopefully catalyzes us into family and becoming a greater family. I know there's some churches today that are thinking to minimize the large gathering just because they see the large gathering as a barrier to community, but that's not how we see it at Crossroads. We see this gathering actually as a bridge, that it bridges us from the large and into the small. In fact, currently, right now, we have 70 house churches. Just stop and think about that. 70 house churches. And this doesn't even include the countless other small groups um, and places and other ministries where people are linked arm in arm. And if this is all you have is a Sunday morning, can I just bluntly say that you cannot possibly grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ if you are not locked arm in arm with other brothers and sisters, where you're known and you know others, where you're loved and you love others. In fact, I'll say this, almost as much as we need Jesus, we also need each other. If you're not in that space, find it. It's, it exists everywhere in this church. Secondly, when I look at the history books and see how the early church won their world for Christ, they did it simply by becoming God's kind of family. They became a tribe that was utterly distinct from the world around them. They they were distinct in the world around them in their convictions. They were distinct in in, in the world around them and how how they lived out those convictions, how how they walked uh, their life. But they were also incredibly distinct in how they related to each other. It wasn't relationship like the world around them that was based on race or culture or status. There was no pecking order uh, within the early church. It was simply a family of spiritual mothers and fathers and spiritual brothers and sisters who are all one in Jesus Christ. And like Jesus, they, they gave up comfort and convenience. They gave up their lives for one another. It wasn't relationship based on what's in it for me or what do I get from this. It was relationship that was selfless. It was sacrificial. It was my life poured out for your life. This is why it was said about the early church, not a need existed among them. Could that be said of us? Because this tribe in in, in, in the first two, three, four, five generations of the church was pushed right into the heart of the Roman world. And it was just a matter of time before it transformed it. What if we became such a tribe? I mean, look around. Our world right now is so lost. It's broken. It's familyless. It's homeless. Philip Yancey, in his classic book, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes this story 
of this prodigal daughter who grew up in Traverse City, Michigan. Uh, as a teenage, teenager, she was disgusted with her parents who overreacted to her nose ring, the music she listened to, the length of her skirts. And so she ran away. She ends up in Detroit where she meets a man who they call boss. He recognizes that since she's underage, men would pay a high price for her. So she goes to work for him, being promised lots of money. Things look good for a while. Life is good. But she gets sick for a few days and amazes her how quickly the boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she's out on her own. She's still turning a couple of tricks a night. And with all the money, she uses it to support her drug habit. One night, while sleeping on the metal grates of the city, she begins to feel less like a woman of the world and more like a little girl. She begins to cry. God, why did I leave? She wants to go home. She calls her dad. It goes to his voicemail. She leaves a message. Dad, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it will get there midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I totally understand. And Yancey writes, when the bus nears the Traverse City Station, the driver announces it's, it's 15 minutes to the stop. 15 minutes to decide her life. She gets off the bus. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. Because there in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles, cousins, grandmother, even a great-grandmother. And they're all wearing goofy party hats, blowing these noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd, says Yancey, one of the well-wishers breaks forth, and it's her dad. And she stares out through the tears filling her eyes. And as she tries to explain herself, he just interrupts her. Hush, child. We got no time for that. We'll be late. A big party awaits for you at home. We're all this girl. Every single one of us has a story of lostness. And if you know Jesus Christ, you then also know how he sought you and how he found you and how he brought you home and made you a part of his family. And that's why all of us right now, we, we need to get a vision of being spiritual mothers and fathers and spiritual brothers and sisters to each other. And especially to the marginalized and to the lost. Because once you know home, once you've experienced home, you want to be home and bring home to those who don't have it. Crossroads, that's what we're going for. That's why this church exists.
We are not here to raise money and to hold services. We are to be family, God's family to each other and broken, marginalized, alienated people who long for home. God, would you anoint us and fill us with your Holy Spirit to be that for a world that you so love. In Jesus' name, amen.